Let's hear God's word from the book of Judges, chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. So all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead, and the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. Then the children of Israel said, tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, my concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel, because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. So all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand, and a thousand out of every ten thousand to make provisions for the people, that when they come to Gibeah and Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now, therefore, deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who numbered 700 select men. Among all this people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Now, besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. Then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. They said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah first. So the children of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. Then the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. And the people, that is, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my, of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day, and Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. All these drew the sword. Then all the children of Israel, that is all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The ark of the covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. Then Israel set men in ambush all around Gibeah. And the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day and put themselves in battle array against Gibeah as at the other times. So the children of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They began to strike down and kill some of the people as at the other times in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. 
and in the field, about 30 men of Israel. And the children of Benjamin said, they are defeated before us as at first. But the children of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. So all the men of Israel rose from their place and put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar. Then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plain of Geba. And 10,000 select men from all Israel came against Gibeah, and the battle was fierce. But the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All these drew the sword. So the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gibeah. The men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city, whereupon the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel, for they said, Surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them. And there was the whole city going up in smoke to heaven. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them, and whoever came out of the cities they destroyed in their midst. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily trampled them down as far as the front of Gibeah toward the east. And 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were men of valor. Then they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, and they cut down 5,000 of them on the highways. Then they pursued them relentlessly up to Gidom and killed 2,000 of them. So all who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, and they stayed at the rock of Rimmon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword. From every city, men and beasts, all who were found, they also set fire to all the cities they came to. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Judges chapter 20. Let's ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, give us grace from this portion of your word also to learn what we need to learn, that we might serve our God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, but also that we might be encouraged that the grace, the righteousness, the justice of our God are all engaged on our behalf through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This chapter that we've read, this long chapter that we've read, continues the story that started in Judges chapter 19. You remember that Judges, of course, chapters 3 through 16 are largely taken up with telling us about individual judges, about Othniel, about Gideon, about Samson, and the rest. And, of course, the book of Judges gets its name from those individuals and from their exploits. But Judges is not just about the leaders in Israel during this troubled time. Judges is about the people as a whole. And so you have opening chapters where you see how the generation that was around with Joshua, the generation that crossed the Jordan and began to conquer the Promised Land, how they did, but then they died, they passed away. And there was another generation that did not live up to the standard set there. Well, at the end of Judges, you get two main stories. There's the stories about Micah and the Danites that we've considered previously. And then there's a story about how a dispute between a Levite from Bethlehem and his concubine turned into a civil war. 
We're in the middle of that one. We're in the Civil War part of that. The next part that comes is the aftermath, the trying to recover from the massacre that was engaged in here. So just so everybody has the context clearly in mind, you remember a Levite and his concubine have a falling out of some kind. She goes and stays at her dad's house for four months. He goes to get her back after some delays caused by repeated invitations from the concubine's dad. They set out and travel. They don't want to stop in a city of the Jebusites, so they go on to Gibeah, which belonged to Benjamin. And they find out that this city of the Benjamites is very much like Sodom used to be. There's the same sort of episode. But whereas when angels came to visit Lot in Sodom, they protected Lot and his family from the perverted violence of the Sodomites. Here in a city of Benjamin in Gibeah, among the Lord's own people, there is no intervention. The concubine is abused and mistreated all night long. Comes in the morning, lies down on the threshold, apparently too weak to knock, too weak to make herself heard. The Levite comes out. She's dead on the threshold. He says, get up, but she doesn't respond. So he picks her up, takes her home, chops her into 12 pieces, and sends her by messengers throughout all Israel. And then they gather, and that's the part we read. They gather, they hold a conclave, they decide to punish Gibeah, they send messengers throughout Benjamin saying, hand over the wicked men from Gibeah so that we can do justice upon them. But the Benjamites don't listen. Instead, they have their own muster. They rally their troops and come out to the defense of Gibeah. And so at this point, civil war is inevitable. The Israelites, the rest of the tribes attack twice, are defeated both times. They attack a third time. They have a word from the Lord. They have an ambush and a stratagem. And this time, they destroy the whole tribe of Benjamin, except for 600 men. That's the story in broad outlines. Now, what are we supposed to learn from that? What lessons can we derive? In order to appreciate this kind of story, in order to get something out of it, it's important to recognize that the echoes of other stories are deliberate. We're supposed to remember Judges chap- or Genesis chapter 19, when we read Judges chapter 19, we're supposed to remember the background of the behavior of the men of Sodom when we consider the behavior of the men of Gibeah and Benjamin. We're also supposed to remember the story of the conquest of Ai from the book of Joshua. You might remember the spies who had checked out Ai said to Joshua, oh, don't send everybody, just send a few of the people because it's a little city, we'll easily take it. But they went and they were defeated. Why were they defeated? They were defeated because there was sin in the camp. Achan had taken some of the accursed, some of the devoted things, some of the spoils of Jericho. He'd concealed it. And so the Lord allowed defeat to come upon the armies of Israel because of the sin of Achan. So then they dealt with Achan. They put away the sinful things from among them. They went back to Ai with the whole host. They had a similar strategy where they had an ambush. And when people got into the city, they were supposed to light fires And then the withdrawing army who was luring the defensive forces out after them would push back and they'd be caught in a pincer movement. Well, the same strategy was applied here. Why is that important? Well, it's important in matters of detail, but in broad strokes, it's important so that we can see sin has once again invaded the camp of Israel. There is grotesque 
extreme sin not repented of. Not only not repented of, defended, defended by force of arms. The rest of the tribe gathers to the defense of the wicked men in Gibeah. They should have been the first in rooting it out, but they were not. And so this tragedy comes. Here's Benjamin. Here's my brother, as they keep on emphasizing. But the brother has to be treated like one of the Canaanite cities, like the city of Ai. Gibeah has to be set on fire. And the inhabitants have to be slaughtered because they've become like Sodom. That also illustrates why was Israel defeated twice before they gained the victory. Well, there was sin in the camp there also. They were not everything they should be. They were to be the instruments of God's judgment, but they needed to have that judgment applied to themselves as well. Now, in this kind of a story, which is dark, which is of heavy content, There are elements of parody. There are elements of irony. You notice that all the children of Israel, they're gathered together as one man. What gathered them together? It was the dismembered pieces of a mutilated corpse. Right? He took his concubine. He chopped her up into 12 pieces. He sent a piece to every one of the tribes. Presumably, Benjamin got a piece and didn't care. They didn't come up to the assembly. They heard Israel was gathering, we're told that, but they didn't come. So you see the irony here. What brings Israel together? What brings Israel together is a dismembered corpse. That's what it took to get them together. They have not been behaving as a unit. They've not been acting as a family. And even when they get together, there's one piece missing. Benjamin is not there. Israel unites, but not perfectly. And Israel unites only in the face of a terrible disaster. Now, that's often what it takes to get people to work together. They have to be shocked out of their slumber. Well, getting, getting a body part in the mail will do that. That's pretty shocking. But how terrible that that's what it takes before we set other differences aside, before we can understand our joint interest. It's good that it happened. It's bad that this is what it took. So now there's a new unity here. Now, there's an interesting note a little bit further on. You remember that Phineas is presiding at the ark when they go up to consult God there. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you that this is early in the period of the judges. It wasn't until after Samson that this happened. We're told about it after Samson. But if Phinehas is still alive, this is happening early in the time of the judges. In other words, it didn't take long for Israel to fall away. People make fun of slippery slope arguments, don't they? People say, well, that's a slippery slope argument. You're saying if I do this, then I'm going to wind up at the bottom. You know, When you jump off a cliff, you start off at the top, don't you? But how long does it take before you hit the bottom? You think, well, it's just a little sin. Well, it's just a minor matter. Well, maybe it is. But can you guarantee that that is as far as it goes? We think of sin 
like a little pussycat that we can control, but it's a roaring lion seeking whom it will devour. We can't mess around in one generation or less. This is how far the people of God fell. Phineas was alive before they crossed the Jordan. Phineas was already exercising the priesthood before they overthrew the Canaanites, before they conquered the land. Phineas knew Moses and Aaron personally. Phineas is still around when Gibeah has turned into Sodom and there's civil war in Israel. Sin is not a joke. You don't know how far it will go. These days, of course, a lot of people are starting to say, you know, all those radical Christians in the 70s and 80s who were warning us about where things were going to go, wow, we laughed at them, and they've been proven right. The slippery slope is only a fallacy if, in fact, the slope isn't slippery. But with sin, it's always slippery. There is no bottom to how far you can fall. Israel is in bad shape. Even when they're united, somebody is missing. It took a terrible tragedy to unite them. And now they have to treat one of their own like a Canaanite tribe, like a Canaanite city. That's where sin will take you. Division, disunity, destruction. Now, Benjamin had the opportunity to do the right thing. The the leaders of Gibeah could have punished the men who behaved in this way. Even if they couldn't have prevented what happened, they probably could have, but let's say that ship had sailed. They could have punished them proactively, but they didn't. And then Israel, the rest of Israel, gives Benjamin a chance to do the right thing. They send messengers and say, hand over the wicked men of Gibeah. But Benjamin doesn't do it. They put their tribe over the truth. Now, that's never happened again ever since in the history of the world. It happens all the time. We close ranks. We circle the wagons. We say, my country, right or wrong. There are some people who think that's a good slogan. There are some people who think that's commendable. That's not commendable. That's horrifying. You can love your country even if your country does the right thing. But to say, I support my country even if that means supporting them doing the wrong thing, that's supporting the internal destruction of your country. Sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. But then people even do that with the church. Well, you know, we can't allow the truth to come out. That would destroy the ministry. If the truth coming out destroys the ministry, maybe the ministry needs to be destroyed. Whether it's a parachurch ministry, whether it's a church, whether it's a denomination. What do we do when somebody in our midst does the wrong thing? What we should do is we should apply discipline ourselves. Now, obviously, if a crime has been committed or something like that, they need to be referred to the appropriate authorities. But if instead of that, we circle around them, we defend them, if we put tribe over truth, if we put family 
over justice, if we put our circle, our group, over right and wrong, we're behaving like Benjamin. Why did almost the whole tribe of Benjamin got, get wiped out on this occasion, all but 600 men? Because they chose to stand in solidarity with wickedness. Now, not everybody in Benjamin was guilty of actually perpetrating that wickedness themselves. Lots of the people in Benjamin knew nothing about what happened in Gibeah until after the fact. But when they were given the opportunity to dissociate themselves from it, they didn't take it. Now, we sometimes speak about guilt by association, and I don't want to be misunderstood. The fact that you had a conversation with somebody or even that you had lunch with somebody doesn't mean you approve of everything they've ever said or done. I understand that. I get that. I mean, the Lord Jesus was criticized for having dinner with sinners. Well, we're happy to follow his example and also have dinner with sinners, right? So we don't believe in that kind of guilt by association. But would you stand in solidarity with a rapist and a murderer to the point of defending them with your own life, of taking up arms to defend them? I hope not. Because that is definitely identifying yourself with them. That is choosing to be involved in their guilt. You see, the Bible recognizes the reality of not just individuals, but of individuals in community. You're a member of your family. You're a member of your church. You're a citizen or a subject of the country where you live, depending on what kind of a country it is. And there is such a thing as corporate guilt. All of Benjamin is guilty, not because they all did it, but because they refused to apply justice themselves. Well, you understand that in the Heidelberg Catechism, we're taught that we have to apply church discipline lest the whole congregation fall under God's anger against the erring individual for that sin. If we refuse to apply church discipline, People sometimes think, oh, it's because we're so merciful. Oh, it's because we're so kind. Oh, it's because we're so gracious. No, it's because we're putting the whole congregation at risk. You also got to think about that element of it. Am I willing to call down the wrath of God on this whole congregation in order to protect one member? What would that say about my view of the rest of you? I mean, I hope that is not what you're expecting from me because that's not appropriate at all. Benjamin should have handed over the wicked men of Gibeah Honestly, they should have already dealt with it before Israel even had to gather. But they didn't. So Israel goes up to fight against their own brother. And twice they're destroyed. They lose 10% of their fighting force. 40,000 men are overthrown. And you think, hold on, they're doing the right thing. Their cause is righteous. Why is God destroying them? Well, the rest of Israel isn't that much better than Benjamin. And Peter tells us that. Peter says that judgment must begin at the house of God. We have a number of criticisms of the world around us, of the society in which we live. And don't get me wrong, those criticisms are real, they're deep, they're accurate, at least a lot of them. But do we have the moral authority to apply them? Do we not need to be purified ourselves? Well, ultimately, the men of Judah triumph. They destroy all of Benjamin except 600 men. Victory, but nobody's celebrating. This was a tragedy. This was a sorrow. This was a disaster. And when 
we discipline somebody, when we excommunicate somebody, when we sever bonds of fellowship with a sister denomination or something like that, which we did do recently with a sister denomination in the Netherlands. They started allowing for the ordination of women to church office, so the other churches of ICRC broke off fellowship with them. It had to be done, but nobody's happy about it. Nobody's celebrating. Nobody's saying, yay, our circle got smaller. Yay, we kicked somebody out. You want to do the right thing, but it's really hard. There is a cost to it. This sort of victory is always tragic, but you do it anyway because the alternative is to let that sort of behavior spread and go unchecked and get even worse. It's an amputation. Nobody celebrates the amputation per se. You might celebrate the life that was saved through amputation, though. This is a sad chapter. This is a hard chapter. This is a chapter that calls upon us to examine ourselves. What does it take for us to care about our brothers and sisters in the Lord? What does it take for us to get involved in their lives? Does it take a dismembered corpse? Does it take some horrible tragedy to wake us up and help us to realize that we're part of a group of people, we're part of a family, a body of believers? Or are we actively involved before things get to that point? This is a chapter that calls upon us to examine ourselves. Do we say, my family, right or wrong? My church, right or wrong? My country, right or wrong? We got to give that up. That is not appropriate. That is choosing to stand in solidarity with sin. If you choose to stand in solidarity with sin, expect to stand in solidarity with sin when it is judged. I mean, that was literally the choice you made. It's a chapter that calls upon us to examine our resolve. Are we devoted to the purity, the peace of the church to the degree that we are willing to engage in amputation, if that's what it takes to spare the health of the rest of the body. Nobody's eager to amputate. Please, please understand that. Please believe me on that one. But are we able, are we ready to do so if the situation calls for it? And finally, are we sure that we're in a position to make those criticisms, to pass that judgment, Or does something need to change in our lives? Are we called to repentance? Because Israel was right to attack Benjamin, but Israel also needed to experience some judgment first. Israel needed to suffer some setbacks. They lost 40,000 men because they too were worthy to be judged for the sins that you see throughout the book of Judges. We need to examine ourselves. And it's very likely that we need to repent on multiple friends. But I leave you with this word of encouragement. A sinful people went to the Lord. They wept. They asked what they should do. And even though they were sinful, even though he had judged them, God answered. God gave them guidance. God gave them victory. God intervened and worked on their behalf. The work of judgment, the work of purifying the church is not easy and it is not fun. But God helped. God worked through them. God answered the prayers of even a sinful people. We need to examine ourselves. We need to repent. We need to set our houses in order. But God hears. God is gracious. God answers. And God works even 
through such imperfect people as we are. Amen.